Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We are in the book of Ephesians, and we're finally in chapter 3. Uh, y'all, I, I, God did a miracle uh, throughout the week, I believe. My, I injured my back pretty bad at the beginning of the week. I, I couldn't even stand up for more than 10 minutes, and then I'd, I'd go from standing to sitting. And I know that some of you were praying for me, some of you who were aware were praying for me. And now I can honestly say I'm standing up here, and my back feels great. And uh, I, I think the Lord touched my back this week. I was dreading standing up for 45 minutes. Believe me, on Friday, I was in so much pain. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to stand up for 45 minutes. This is going to be brutal. Uh, but I'm so thankful. Uh, as we continue in Ephesians, I want to remind us that each passage that we discuss on Sunday is a continuation of Paul's train of thought. That uh, each passage is not to be just looked at individually, but it's part of a, uh, a longer train of thought uh, that the book of Ephesians was meant to be read in one sitting. And so even though we break it up passage by passage through this series, it's really one train of thought. And so I thought it would be helpful for us as we dive into chapter 3 to just do a really quick recap on what we've already discussed in the first two chapters that we're building upon. In the first uh, week, we talked about the opening address and how Paul... Uh, has divided the book of Ephesians into two sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 is all about how the Christian, uh, it, how, it's about our standing in the eyes of God. Our, it's about our righteousness and where uh, we stand in the eyes of God. That God sees his people not as sinners, but as saints saved by grace. Oftentimes people say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul, when he writes to the church, he says, to the saints in Ephesus, and he has a very robust understanding of the church's identity, how we've been justified and we are being sanctified to look more and more like Christ. So the first three chapters in Ephesians are about our standing in Christ, and chapters four through six are about how we are to walk out our faith and how we are to behave. And so we haven't got there yet. We're still in the first, uh, the first three chapters. Uh, we also talked about the spiritual blessings that we've inherited as children of God, that we are chosen, that in the beginning of time, before the creation of the world, God chose you. He, it means he sought after you. He pursued you to be part of his family, that we are forgiven, that we've been given wisdom by the Holy Spirit, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is the promise of the things to come, that those of us who, uh, if you've ever questioned your faith, like me, I grew up in the church, and believe me, when I was at youth group, I'd be raising my hand to ask Jesus into my heart every week just to seal the deal, make sure that I was going to heaven. But what Paul is saying is that if you've been given the Holy Spirit, he is the promise of things to come. He is the seal of your salvation, and he is, uh, one of the, he is the spiritual blessing that we have received as children of God. We talked about how we've been given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and Paul prays the spirit of wisdom and revelation would show you, uh, would, would help you to better understand God's call for your life and for us as the church, uh, that the spirit of wisdom would show us how, value, how valuable we are in the eyes of God, and that the spirit of wisdom would show us the fullness of the greatness of God's power. That he is over all things, all authority. He is in full control. We also talked about the three enemies of your soul. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And the ways that we once walked. You were once this way, right? Following the ways and the patterns of this world. Being driven by the desires of your flesh. And then we talked about, but God. Being rich in mercy. 
has saved us by grace through faith. It is an act of God, not our own works. Nobody can boast. Nobody can say, I was good enough. I did more good things than bad things, so God's going to let me into heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it it was a full act of God's grace that saved us, that we did nothing to earn it. But God saved us by grace through faith. And last week we talked about how Jesus became our peace. Not my peace, although Jesus does want to give you personal peace, but Jesus became our peace. He is the reason that you and I are not only reconciled with God, but you and I are reconciled with one another. Jesus has, has united humanity in himself. And he has destroyed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and has united us together in Christ. We have, uh, we have Jesus in common, and that's what brings us together. Jesus in common is what brings us peace together. Isn't that what the world needs today? It needs peace. We need peace with one another, peace and humanity. That's what the devil has come to destroy. And we're going to get there in just a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we're going to continue on this train of thought, this idea of Jew and Gentile being brought together in one. And Paul, in chapter 3, is about to bless the church with a prayer, but he gets sidetracked in verse 2. He goes on this tangent and starts talking about something known as the mystery of Christ, and he picks up his train of thought in verse 14, which is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to be talking about Paul's tangent today of the mystery of Christ. Anybody get stuck uh, going off on, on tangents? Anybody with ADD? Just squirrel. You just, you just forget what you were talking about. Well, I don't know if that's what happened to Paul, but Paul takes a very long tangent. Verses 2 through 13 are actually, again, one long sentence in the Greek. So this is a big deep breath for Paul as he goes on this tangent. We're going to start with verse 1. And I'm going to stop just after verse 1. It says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. First of all, Paul wouldn't even be in prison if he didn't bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He could have stayed among the Jews, and things may have been much easier for him, but he displays his love for others by enduring prison for people who are so different from himself that he expresses his love for people who need to hear the gospel, who don't know yet that they have inherited salvation, that they have access to salvation. So Paul goes across the known world on, on various missionary journeys and eventually makes it to Ephesus, but he's writing this letter from prison And he's expressing that he is in prison. He is a prisoner of Christ because of how much he loves the Gentiles. How much he loves people who are so different from him. And I would ask us all to take a look at our lives and and look at the people that we surround ourselves with and ask, do I surround myself with people who are different than I? Do I love people who are different than I? Do I have people in my life who don't look like me or think like me or have the same social status or economic status or or who are different races. God wants to put you in places where you have access into people's lives so that you could bless them with his grace. Paul thinks of himself as a prisoner of Jesus. But Paul's in a Roman prison. So technically, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. But for Paul, he is so submitted And has complete trust that God is directing his steps. That even though he's in prison, he knows that Jesus has him in prison for a reason. It doesn't matter what Paul is doing. He could be doing anything and he'd be doing it for Jesus. If Paul was a baker, 
he'd be a baker of Jesus Christ. If Paul was a teacher, he'd be a teacher of Jesus Christ. If he was a farmer, he'd be a farmer of Jesus Christ. If he was a stay-at-home parent, he'd be a stay-at-home parent of Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He does it all for Jesus. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been frustrated with your life and thought that maybe you could be doing so much more? Man, I could be doing so much more with my life if I just had access to these resources, if I knew, if I knew the right people, if I would have been in the right place at the right time, or if I would have made different decisions in high school and college, I could have been this, and I'm frustrated with where I am in my life. Maybe you had big dreams in your youth, and you envisioned something so much more profound for your life, but you, maybe you took over the family business, or you settled down and had a family, and now you're a stay-at-home parent, or maybe you made a few bad decisions and you got stuck, or at least it feels like you got stuck. And life doesn't look like how you imagined it when you were young. When you dreamed about the thing that you would become, life doesn't look like that right now. Let me tell you, the truth of God this morning is that if you have truly given God control of your life, then you can be sure that your life is a musical note in the grand orchestral masterpiece that God is creating. That your life is being used in ways that you can't even imagine. If you are submitted to Jesus and you've given your life to Jesus, it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, your life is being used by God. Imagine what Paul could have done sitting in prison. He could have said, God, I have so much more potential. I could, have, I could be out there right now saving cities, but I'm sitting in a prison cell. Little did Paul know the impact that the, that the letters he wrote from prison would have on the world, would have on the globe. It was from prison that Paul wrote much of the New Testament that has become a central piece in bringing hundreds of millions of people to salvation. He may have thought he was just sitting in a prison cell. Paul, Paul knew that he was a prisoner of Christ and God was using the time in the prison cell to do something mighty. And from the prison cell came... Many of the New Testament, much of the New Testament that we have today that brings hundreds of millions of people to salvation. God uses even the prison cell. God does some of his most powerful work in seasons of obscurity. I know this is one thing I struggle with because my wife and I, we're we're the same type. uh, We're both, if you've taken the Enneagram, my wife is a three. She's an achiever. I'm I'm a one. And uh, we, we like attention. We like to be seen. I mean, come on, if you're breathing in this room, I would say a lot of people like to be seen. They like you to be recognized. Maybe there's some of you introverts out there who just say, nope, thank you. Uh, that's not me. But, but I struggle with obscurity sometimes in my life. Like, God, I, I feel like I have so much more potential. God, I, are you using me to my fullest capacity, capacity? But God does some of his most powerful work in seasons of obscurity. David. King David, let's talk about him. Where did he receive the confidence to fight Goliath? When he heard that there was a giant taunting Israel's armies, he went to the front lines and he told a giant off and told them about how great God was and how this day he was going to feed his body to the birds of the field, to to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He had full confidence in God. But where did this scrawny runt of a kid 
get so much confidence and boldness. He got it in the shepherd's field, in a season of obscurity, where God was developing his character and preparing him to become a king. He probably didn't know it, that as he's watching sheep all alone in a field with a heart praising God, that God was actually preparing his character to lead his people as king of Israel. But it was in a moment of obscurity that God was doing some of his greatest work. Some of you may feel like you're stuck. Maybe you feel like you're in a prison cell or you're in a shepherd's field where nobody sees you. You don't don't understand what's going on. You don't understand what God is doing in the background. But could it be perhaps that God is developing a character in you that is going to be used in mighty ways in the future? And if we trust God with our seasons of obscurity, God uses those seasons in mighty ways. What's the point? The point is never underestimate the season you're living in. God can be doing so much. God can be doing something so much bigger. Trust that he's in control of your life. Ask yourself this morning, am I a prisoner of Jesus? Is my life fully submitted to Jesus? You fill in the blank. Am I a farmer of Jesus? Am I a teacher of Jesus? Am I an employee of Jesus? Am I a mom of Jesus? Am I a dad of Jesus? Am I doing these things for the Lord? Is he my my rock, my foundation? Do I trust that he's in control of my every step? In verse 2, Paul takes this tangent, and he doesn't resume this train of thought until verse 14, but he begins to speak about the mystery of Christ. So let's start reading verse 2. He says this, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Let's stop there. Pastor, are we going to get through this passage? Yes, we are. Don't worry. I want to talk about what he says about stewardship of God's grace. See, Paul not only sees himself as a recipient of grace, he sees himself as a steward of grace. Meaning that God has showed his grace to Paul not to be hoarded and kept to himself and think, oh, that's great, I'm going to heaven, I've got my golden ticket. Not to, not to escape, not to, uh, not to get stuck in perfectionism, but God has given Paul grace to put him to work. He is a steward of God's grace. And when God shows his grace to you, when he shows his favor to you, when he invites you into salvation and you respond to the call of God, and you say yes to Jesus, you become a steward of God's grace. Meaning that it's not something you can just sit on, but it's something that propels you to show the love of Jesus to everyone around you. You are a steward of God's grace. Grace has put you to work to share grace with others. Verse 3, I'll back up. We'll start from verse 2. Assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery, Paul? Can you feel the Can you feel the question? He's building up the anticipation. What are you talking about, Paul? What is the mystery that was not revealed to generations past, but now suddenly has been revealed to you? What is the mystery that you are referring to? It's a mystery 
that God has given Paul. Have you ever played the game Clue before? <clears throat> I'm a big board game player. Uh, we love board games in my family. We don't often play Clue. It's a little juvenile for us. We like the high-end strategy games. No. Okay. A Clue. I'm getting, see, now I'm going off on a tangent here, board game tangent. Clue is a board game. It's a murder mystery board game in which the players try to figure out who the murderer was. Oh, thank you. Am I, am I <coughs> coughing? They try to figure out who the murderer was by using deduction. And if the players play long enough, they can eventually discover the answer on their own after having all the pieces to the puzzle. And this is often how we think of the word mystery. Something that can be discovered or answered after careful investigation. But this is not the Jewish understanding of the word mystery. The word mystery in the Greek is the word mysterion. And it refers to something that only God can reveal. You can only understand a mystery when God himself, when, when, when the divine controller of the universe, when God himself reveals to you the revelation. And Jesus used this word in the Gospels when the disciples asked why he spoke in parables. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. Then disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the mysterion, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Verse 17, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. Jesus was telling the disciples, like the prophets and righteous people in the past, people do not receive revelation until God's spirit discloses the mystery. They were prophets and righteous people. Right? They weren't lacking in, in biblical knowledge or in hunger and thirst for the Lord, but the Spirit had not yet given them the revelation yet. He had not disclosed it to them. For example, when we read the story of Exodus, uh, of Israel spreading the Lamb's blood over the doorpost, we can read that and we can understand that it alludes to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that gives us eternal life and saves us from death. When we read the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac and how God provided a sacrifice in place of Isaac, we can identify how it's connected to Jesus' sacrifice for humanity. But before Jesus... When the Jews read these stories, they didn't understand the greater revelation hidden inside. They were familiar with these stories. They were powerful stories about their ancestors, about their spiritual upbringing, right? But they didn't understand the greater revelation that was hidden within these stories that was all made evident when Jesus arrived on the scene. Jesus brought new meaning and revelation to all of these things that had been hidden since the beginning. Jesus is the answer. He is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to, and he is the one that the New Testament points back to. It is all about Jesus. The fullness of God's mystery, the revelations of heaven, uh, the, the, all the understanding that we need, all the wisdom that we need is found in the person of Jesus. And this is according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, um, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. First two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches 
of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says in Colossians that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation, that when we see Jesus, we see the exact representation of God the Father according to the book of Hebrews. The mystery of Christ that had been revealed to Paul. And we're going to get to what this mystery is in a moment. It was given to him by the Spirit. It was given to the apostles and the prophets is what he says. Now, Paul, he's not referring to spiritual gifts here. Paul is referring to prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament. When, when he says that the, 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 this revelation, this, this mystery has been revealed to the apostles and prophets. He's not talking to people with an apostolic gift. He's not talking about people with a prophetic gift. He's talking about prophets of the Old Testament who wrote Scripture and apostles in the New Testament. What he's saying is Scripture, which has been written by the prophets and apostles, is the fullness of God's revelation expressed. Paul uh, helped to put a capstone on the Word of God. And when we had the completion of the, the New Testament, the New Testament shows us the fullness of God's revelation. So now we can say with confidence that there's now no new revelation that exists apart from Scripture. Do we still have people with the gift of prophecy? Yes, absolutely. That God speaks to individuals and he gives them insight and words of revelation to speak over people. But it is not separate from Scripture. That the revelation that is given to people with the gift of prophecy that speak out and edify the church, we can look at Scripture and confirm what they spoke and say, yes, this is in the Word of God. Yes, what they speak is truth because we have the Word of God to measure all revelation, to measure all words of prophecy against. Therefore, no person can say, I've received a new revelation from God that, that wasn't in the Bible before. I now understand that hell doesn't exist. Because God told me so. No, we don't have that today because we have the Scripture. When, when, we receive, when we receive revelation, we have the Scripture to hold it against. And so God, he revealed this mystery to Paul, an apostle that was not yet revealed. And Paul is the one who helped contribute to the Word of God and helped put a capstone on the Word of God that gives us the fullness of God's revelation. Does that make sense? So what is this mystery of Christ? That has been now made known to the Apostle Paul. Great question. Thanks for asking. Paul's about to tell us. Verse 6. This is what he says. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Which was given me by the working of his power. Now, if you're a Gentile at church today, this is old news. Because you wouldn't be here today unless you believe that salvation was open to the Gentiles. So this is old news that we're hearing. And you might be wondering, well, what's the significance of this mystery? Big whoop, Pastor. What is so profound? And what we have to do is, for a moment, take a step back and try to put ourselves in the shoes of an Old Testament Jew. And, and to understand what their picture of salvation was for the Gentiles. Because if you were to ask an Old Testament Jew, can the Gentiles inherit salvation? They probably would have said, uh, yeah, 
God said that he would use Abraham's seed to bless the nations, but what they perceived is that the Gentiles would become circumcised, that they would fall under the law of Moses, and they would essentially become Jewish and inherit salvation that way. But they didn't stop to consider, uh, they never expected that God would welcome the Gentiles into salvation while they still remain Gentiles. That they didn't have to do anything extra for it. That grace was extended to, to them without, without having to fall under the law of Moses, without having to be circumcised. That grace was a free invitation to the Gentiles. That God was saying, come as you are and receive my grace. Come as you are and be changed by, by my son. Be, be changed by the Holy Spirit. But I invite you into this relationship at no cost. Just come on in. You can understand that many Jews were greatly offended at this. And they insist that even some in the New Testament, we see Paul, Peter and Paul having to break up fights within the church because uh, there are some Jewish Christians who are insisting that the Gentiles still have to be circumcised. Now, I'm quick to judge the Jews. And maybe you are too. Maybe we're quick to judge the Jews. Come on, guys, let us in. Jesus has said, God has said so. It's his plan since the beginning of time. Just why, What's the big deal? I'm quick to judge the Jews, but then I consider how entitled I, became, I, I have become. How entitled I quickly become. I've been a Christian all my life, so I must have a leg up on that person who just received Jesus, right? I've got I've to have a, a little bit of a leg up on those guys. I've never done that thing, so God must favor me just a little bit more. He must love me a little bit more. He must hear my prayers, answer my prayers a little bit more than that person. But I was the outsider. You are the outsider who was invited into this, who was invited into God's grace, into this family of God. The mystery of Christ is that you and I have been invited into the family of God. And it is a, a staggering, it's a profound revelation for Paul. Peter received the same revelation in Acts chapter 10. When Cornelius, a centurion, uh, is visited by an angelic being, and, and at the same time, Peter's on a roof, and he sees uh, these sheets lowered from heaven that have all sorts of animals, unclean animals on them. And God tells Peter to kill and to eat. And Peter says, no, I, I can't eat unclean animals. And this happens three times, and God tells Peter, don't call anything I've created unclean. And so when Peter meets with Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, falls on Cornelius, fills the Gentiles. And Peter looks around and says, well, I guess there's no reason why we shouldn't baptize these guys. They've already been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's water baptize these guys. And Peter, er, God was revealing the same revelation to Paul and Peter, the holy apostles and prophets, just like Paul had mentioned earlier. Let's continue with verse 8. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul views himself, Paul is fully aware of his unworthiness. In fact, Paul says that he's the very least of the saints because at one point, Paul was persecuting the church. I'm sure there were moments where Paul was getting people to deny, to renounce their faith in Christ. That, that's who he was. 
And he is the very least of the, he considers himself to be the very least of his saints because he's, he's very aware of how unworthy he is to be called into this commission to show grace, to, to extend this, this truth to the Gentiles. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, this is a heavy verse right here. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly places. When Paul refers to rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he did earlier in Ephesians, and he does later in Ephesians chapter 6. He's referring to evil powers and evil authorities that are at work. And what he is saying is that God has united Jew and Gentile. He's brought humanity together. He is he is he has fixed the division and he is parading it over the darkness. He's parading it over the enemy. Did you know that that's what the devil came to disrupt in the very beginning? Relationship. That's what the devil came after. Relationship with God and relationship with each other. What did Adam say to God after they sinned? It was the woman. It was her fault. The woman that you gave me messed up, God, and I was just doing what she told me to do. Come on, that's what every husband in the room says. I was just doing what she told me to do. Okay, I'm going to tangent right here. We had a garage sale this weekend. And this, this couple came, and they had a handful of stuff, and, and uh, they had a handful of things. And, you know, I was going to say, like, I was going to ask maybe 15, 20 bucks for all the stuff that they had in their hand. And this young lady, Christina and I are standing next to each other, and she comes to both of us. And she says, but you take $6 for all this stuff. And I'm about to say, how about 10? And Christina goes, yeah, yeah, $6. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I, I just went, I'm going to go inside. You're in charge. I just left her in charge. It's the woman. Just talk to the woman. From then on, at the garage sale, they'd be like, how much do you want for this? Talk to the woman. She's in charge. I'm not going to do this. Okay, that was a tangent. But the devil came to disrupt relationships. The very next, the, the very next generation, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel and takes his brother's life. And there's division suddenly in humanity. The devil came to disrupt our relationship with God and to disrupt our relationship with one another. And what Jesus did repaired our relationship with God. Gave us access to his father once again like we had in the garden. And he he brought peace among people. And when Jew and Gentile, when people come together in peace... In the name of Jesus, man, it, do, it wreaks havoc on the darkness. God parades that over the darkness to say, look what my son has done. He has restored the relationship with humanity and myself, and he has restored the relationship among people. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meaning that God had planned this from the very beginning. That it was always God's plan for all humanity to come to him. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then Paul says this. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to talk about losing heart. I'm going to go really fast. I've got 10 minutes Ten minutes left because I'm hungry. I want to eat. But I want to talk about losing heart. Paul does not want the church to lose heart. The Greek word is ekakeo. Say that to somebody next to you. Ekakeo. And, and this word, lose heart, 
It means to faint or to become exhausted. Let me ask you this morning. Have you ever been spiritually exhausted before? Have you been weary? Have you felt like your faith is just hanging by a thread? That you just are confused and you're spiritually exhausted? Maybe you even considered giving up your faith and wondered if it was worth it. It's so easy to lose heart when things aren't going the way that we expect them or want them to go. I'll admit I've been spiritually fatigued. I've been exhausted. I've lost heart when I pray, and I pray for a miracle, and I don't see the result I was expecting. I've lost heart when I didn't make the cut, and I question my identity. I remember trying out for a worship team at a church a long while back, and the whole reason I went to this church was to get on the worship team, and I didn't even get a call back. And I thought, well, who am I if I'm not a worship leader? My whole identity was wrapped up in music and and, and worship leading at that point, and I thought when I... When they basically told me I wasn't good enough. And when that happened, I began to question everything. I began to lose heart and become discouraged. But Jesus and Paul, they give us some things to remember so that we don't lose heart. Now, none of these things are going to blow your mind, okay? I'm going to tell you right off the bat. These are things that you've heard many times, if, especially if you've grown up in church. But we need to be reminded of these things, the power of these things, so that we don't lose heart. The first thing is this. Remember that God hears and answers prayer. God hears your prayer and he answers your prayer. This is what Luke 18.1 says. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not ekakeo. Lose heart. Become exhausted. Be weary. And Jesus begins to tell them the parable of the persistent widow and the power of prayer. Jesus says, if, uh, don't lose heart. Instead, pray. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember that God hears and he answers your prayer. Has anybody read C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters before? And this interaction, there's these two demons talking to one another. Screw tape is, is speaking to Wormwood, and he's giving him instruction on uh, how, to, uh, how, to, how to torment his client, this human that this demon is, is, is residing over, who's keeping his eye on him. And Screw tape writes to Wormwood, he said, The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying. He says, in fact, he continues to go on in this conversation. He says, if you can get this person to just get in this really repetitive mode of prayer, just this robotic uh, uh, prayer that they pray all the time, they'll, they'll begin to lose the power of prayer. It'll just become, you know, automatic. They won't have any heart or, or feelings into it. But he, he, he reminds this, this demon, Wormwood, avoid prayer. Avoid, get that person away from prayer. Because if the church was serious about prayer, if we were serious about taking our anxiety, about taking our frustration, about taking our sickness, about taking our needs and petitions to God, if we were serious about it, our lives would change altogether. So we don't lose heart because we can remember that God hears and answers prayer. The second thing that we need to remember is that God is always with you. If you are weary, if you're spiritually fatigued, 
if you're losing heart, remember what God tells Joshua in chapter Joshua 1.9. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. He says, don't be frightened and don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why doesn't Joshua have to be discouraged? Why doesn't he have to fear? Because the Lord promises that he's always with him. So often we feel alone in life. So often when we're discouraged, we feel isolated. We feel like nobody sees us. We feel like God has abandoned us. When the reality is God has promised that he would never leave you. That he is always with you wherever you go. The third thing that we need to remember so that we don't lose heart is that we need to remember to focus on eternal things. Focus on eternal things. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Paul says, so we do not ekakeo. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Are you weary? Are you losing heart? We need to remember that God has eternal things in store for us. That is our future. And we can take our eyes off of the momentary pain, off of the momentary frustration. Fix our eyes on eternal things and see what Jesus sees. The fourth thing is this. God promise, God's promises never go unfulfilled. When God makes a promise, he always follows through. He never breaks a promise. The Bible is filled with promises from God. And he assures his people of his faithfulness and care. He promises to strengthen and encourage us when we seek him. So when you lose heart, when you become discouraged, remember what Isaiah 41.10 says. It's the promise of God. God says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 2 Corinthians 12.9. Here's another promise. This is what God said to Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. When you are discouraged, when you are dismayed, when you're weary, remember that God's promises never go unfulfilled. So when you read Scripture and when you see a promise of God, you can grab hold of that promise and believe, this is for me. God has spoken this over my life, and he always comes through. I'm going to invite Mary to come up as we close with this last point. The last thing we need to remember is that God is in complete control. God is in complete control. Trust that God is in control, even when things seem uncertain or difficult, and it can help combat discouragement. I mentioned this verse earlier this morning, Romans 8, 28. says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. I want to spend just a few minutes before we break into the cafe and have some food together. I want to pray for those of you who are weary. Those of you who may have lost heart. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you have felt 
a burden on your back or like a dark cloud has followed you around. And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to bring back to you the joy of your salvation, wants to encourage you. If I could ask the prayer teams to make their way up, would everybody stand with me? And if I could ask some of the prayer teams, Bakers, the Dormeyers, Dad, if you'd come on up. The darts are here. I don't know if the darts are here. Yeah, the, the Phillips, come on up. What I want to do is just everybody close your eyes in the room right now and focus your heart on the Holy Spirit right now who's in this place and he is is beside you, he's within you, he is waiting to encounter you once again with a fresh encounter. And as I pray over you, would you just receive this prayer? Holy Spirit, I invite you into my situation. In the season that I'm in, or I feel discouraged, I feel like I'm hanging on by a thread, I feel like I I lose heart too often. Would you remind me how much you love me, that you never let me go, that you never leave me alone, you're always with me, that you hear me, you answer my prayers, you're not a God who's far off. Your promises always are fulfilled. You're in complete control of my life. Once again, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. If you would just speak that right now in your heart, if that's you and you need to surrender your life to him again, say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you once again. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come in power this morning and begin to change hearts. Encourage the brokenhearted. God, I pray for relationships who have been broken relationships between children and parents and between marriages and work relationships and Lord we ask that you would come and you would begin to heal those relationships you'd bring forgiveness and restoration to those things we love you Jesus we're going to dismiss in a moment but uh, Mary's going to stay up here and play. Play Our, our prayer teams are going to stay up here. And we're going to offer prayer to those who want to come forward and be prayed over. But uh, we're going to dismiss everybody else to go into the cafe. And uh, we're going to eat together. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time together, our fellowship. And bless this food that, um, that has been prepared for us. And we love you, Jesus, with our whole hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Please, please come forward for prayer. If you need prayer for healing, for restored relationships, if you just need to be encouraged, come forward.